honestly, I can show you my notes. I know that was really great for this audio medium, but just trust me, there's a lot of notes. Thanks for joining the Escape With Me book club. Escape with me, Sam Reiner. And me, David Warner. Into our most recent read. Come with us as we evade reality and go into detail about how a book compares to its movie. We will be talking about both in detail, so there will be spoilers. Today we are looking at Ready Player One. Published in 2011, Ernest Cline's obsession with the nerdy culture of the 1980s rocketed his debut novel to becoming a New York Times bestseller, as well as garnering the Alex Award and the 2011 Prometheus Award. The book didn't see a cinematic release until 2018, and while it received mediocre reviews, it garnered commercial success and was nominated for a large number of awards, and then winning awards for animation and cinematography. So where do we think the movie stands? That movie was dog and awful, and you cannot change my mind. It was horrible. Steven Spielberg, what the Every time I get reminded that he was the director of that movie, I wonder what happened. I have some ideas. I know a couple of things, but I have some ideas. All right, background. Okay, so I saw the movie first. I had no idea the book existed. And so this was back in 2018. My husband took me to the movies because he's obsessed with movies and books and movies about books. And I thought it was good at the time. Yeah, see, when you have absolutely no context of what that story is supposed to be like, and I hate you for bringing me into this demographic of the type of person who can say, oh my God, the book was so much better. I feel like every review we've done together, that has been the Well, here's the thing. This is the second time, third time that we've done this? I don't know. Third time. Third time. So with Catch Me If You Can, I already liked the movie. I still really like the movie. It's a fantastic movie. I just found out the book is also very good. The things that were changed in that book made sense. If they had used different names for their characters in this movie, it would have been a completely different story. Yeah, there's a couple of traces where they're like, hey, let's whatever. So many things bugged the crap out of me. But yeah. I saw the movie first, then I read the book for this, because you were like, let's do Ready Player One, and then I watched the movie again, and nope. Yeah, no, the movie is awful. I don't typically describe movies as having to sit through them, but I had to sit through it in order to get through it the first time, because I had never seen the movie. Oh my gosh, how many speeches did Wade give (laughs) near the end? Oh my gosh. The speech to get all of them there, the speech about the Easter egg, the speech about Halliday, this isn't what you would want. Oh, Lars yelling from upstairs saying it's a good movie because my mother and girlfriend both for whatever reason enjoy that piece of crap. Have they read the book? No they have not but she wants to read the book so that way she can understand what I'm talking about when I say that that movie was god awful. Yeah. I saw the trailers for the movie but I never actually watched it but all the trailers had that based on the award winning novel all over it and we oh interesting and then when we were talking about this must have been it just came to the forefront of my mind one of those memories that you don't even realize you had and I'm like oh that seems interesting people say good things about the movie and the book was a New York Times bestseller. It was praised by critics. So sure, give it a shot. It had got a lot of awards. It is a New York Times bestseller and it was his debut novel. So those are some pretty big things. He does have an interesting writing style. He came up with some certain phrases that I was wondering why. But no, my introduction really was just, oh, this looks like an interesting movie based on a book. And that was it. I had no other interaction with this story whatsoever until this for this episode. Yeah, this was a, this was a time. So the biggest change, which by the way, the book, weirdly enough, is young adult. And you kind of get it because he's a teenager about to be an adult. He's a high school student towards graduation. And so that's the book. And then they kind of lower it for the movie to make it PG-13. And I get it. There's no young adult movie level. So I get it. But I do think that's one of the downfalls of the movie a little bit is it is lowered to PJ-13. Honestly, this book was two or three more D-list actors away from I would have been convinced it was made by Nickelodeon. Because <laughs> I just remembered the other movie that we watched and it was Swindle. I can't believe you forgot. I was remembering Catch Me If You Can. I forgot about Swindle. You have repressed it. I did. And honestly, until this insult came to my mind just now, I had it repressed successfully. <laughs> 
But yeah, if Gibby or Sam or trying to use actor and actresses names, but I can only think of the characters that they played. If any of those people, those actors were in this movie, it would have been a successful Nickelodeon film. Well, you have to remember, it would have been Nickelodeon stars from 2018. So maybe 2017, 2016. We didn't watch Nickelodeon. They could have been. Honestly, any of these people could have been Nickelodeon stars and we would not know. I did not go back and check the actors. So they're probably not, but... They have the one main kid who I meant to look up what else they had been in. It's too bad I don't have this glowing rectangle in front of me that allows me to get all the world's information on my fingerprint. Okay, he doesn't even have a name that reminds me who he is. Ty Sheridan? Sheridan? That sounds like a Nickelodeon star. He's got the face. Honestly, the two most recognizable people in this movie was definitely TJ Miller and Simon Pegg. Those are the people who I immediately like, oh, I know them. Yeah, Holiday and Og. No, no, no. Irock and Ogden Morrow. Oh. See, I recognize the one dude that played Og from Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, Simon Pegg. Everyone recognizes him. And then Irock. It's a different type of movie. I mean, Deadpool kind of stuff. You got to be in the right circles to get that stuff. Oh, I didn't recognize him straight off. What did he do in Deadpool? That is a fantastic question. I will let you know. Only the people in the know on this special circles understand. It said he was in Deadpool, and I believe it. <laughs> was he the iron guy? You're asking me questions. I don't know who he was. He was Cyclops. Oh. Okay, he just has a face. It looks like he should be more famous than he is, but he is nothing but the background character. Yeah. In this movie, he was hashtag not my Wade. <laughs> okay, one thing I want to bring up, because it's really petty, but it's also not really petty, because guys, you should remember this. In the beginning of the movie, they give him glasses instead of him being overweight, which they do for all of the characters. There's several of them that are specifically either overweight or fat, and then they have, you know, conventionally attractive people put on street clothes, and they're hip and the youth and rebellion anyway. We can't have fat, ugly protagonists. They just have to have the eyesight. Yeah, except halfway through the movie, they totally give up on that. He doesn't wear glasses. When he meets Samantha, he's not wearing glasses. Oh, whoa. He's not wearing glasses then. He doesn't wear them for the rest of the movie. In the beginning, he has glasses. He takes them off to put on the visor. He never puts them back on. Uh, The Oasis is curing people's cataracts. (laughs) Really, truly an invention beyond our time. Oh my gosh. I never noticed that. It annoyed me because no, you're supposed to be overweight and not conventionally attractive. The same thing with the Japanese characters. They're supposed to have acne. And spoiler alert, one of them's supposed to be dead. True. (laughs) But there's a real subculture of people in Japan are shut-ins. And that was a representation of that subculture. And it added something to it anyway. There's a lot more nuance to every single character in the book. But the fact that there were some overarching, really important details, they just just decided, eh, we can just change the character. He's supposed to start out as this nerdy, fat, just did not win the genetic lottery. He's a dork. He's a dork. He's an 80s dork. Yeah. That's what it's supposed to be, a geek. And there's this whole point in the book where he decides, you know what, screw it. I am getting my health under control. I'm going to do things that are good for me. I'm going to start exercising. He forces himself to exercise. And then once he gets to the point where he can stop doing it, where his software will let him remove it, he decides, ah, screw it. This is good for me. I'm doing a good thing. No, he's start skinny. He doesn't start in Oklahoma City like he's supposed to. He's already starting in Columbus where there's all this stuff. Yeah, everyone just so happens to be. The entire act two of the book is them getting to and being in Columbus. And then act three is when they go to Oregon with Ogden Morrow. But the fact that they start in Columbus, you already know, okay, this is going to be expedited. This is going to be expedited somewhat severely. I know. As soon as Samantha comes out and is like, oh, there's the IOI towers. So the stacks must be over there. I'm like, I get it. But also, why? Why did Samantha kidnap him? Why is there a resistance? Why? Why do most things happen? And also, why does Tattoo Face, why is he the one that they send over instead of happy-go-lucky Janae from accounting? But no, they send the most terrifying man they have. When that guy just appears and he just rises up behind Wade while he's logged in the Oasis, this dude's about to get choked out. This is Austin Powers sitting on the toilet. That one scene in that movie, if you've seen any Austin Powers movies, but no, no, no. That was actually terrifying. Like, they're about to kill my boy. And then they take him to the Resistance, which we never talk about ever again, by the way. Nope. The droids follow them, shoot out the place, and then instead of killing Artemis, they decide instead to kidnap her and put her into a loyalty center. Drones are not quiet. There's no way the two big things that happen with drones... 
which was the planting of the C4 in the stacks and then following Tattoo Face around. There's no way those covert operations could have been pulled off when you have 20 or 30 decibels of <laughs> just overhead. Well, also, they're a different color. Yeah, they're red. They are obviously evil drones. And so it's not even the normal drones that are white. They're red drones. Yeah, we saw Pizza Hut delivery with a drone. And you're like, oh, look, drones are flying around all over the place. Cool. And I thought that was cute. I was like, that's a good addition. Like, I like that. Yeah. But the fact that you specifically have killer drones that are red. You're not normalizing drones driving around everywhere. Not even, no. Going back to Wade's character. In the book, it's this complete and total underdog story. Yeah. Kid who's got nothing going for him, doesn't even have a dollar to his name, is doing his best and wins this contest. Spoiler alert, but you know, it's the protagonist. Of course he's going to be successful in whatever he's attempting to do. He wins this contest because he is truly the most knowledgeable Halliday scholar who knows all of his stuff, works through this teamwork with these other similarly aligned people who are just able to help him along in his quest and these little pieces that they're missing, kind of this falling back and who's going to get there first, this neck and neck race to get to the end. But you're robbed of that in the movie. He's not this fat underdog. He's just this outcast, good looking teenager. Not even an outcast. Really? The other thing that just pisses me off. It's the one note that I made with a ranking next to it and says Aunt Alice has redeemable qualities in the movie. Zero out of ten. In the book, she was a garbage human being and so was her boyfriend. And honestly, that's what the story needed. I think she's supposed to be sympathetic. So when she dies, you care. But the movie doesn't care. No! Wade cared way more in the book that that happened. Oh yeah. And the way that the explosion happened in the book was so much better too because you get this brief moment where they're talking about like a you you wouldn't actually do that and we would log out and find out. So he logs out and he's just kind of sitting there in silence for a bit. He's like, huh. Oh good, they didn't do it. I knew they were full of crap and then the explosions start. That was so much better. Oh my gosh. Up to this point, this totally normal company was a little greedy but a normal company is trying to murder people. Yeah. And does not care about collateral damage. If you have these drones that can follow people around and shoot things, why don't you just shoot him? Why do you have to blow up a stack? Now, it's explained in the book the reason they went for the explosion is because those happen all the time. There's meth labs and domestic terrorists all over the place. No one would blink. No one would think twice about that explosion. What do they not tell you in the movie? That. The very important piece of information that explains why they went this way because otherwise you're just looking at this like holy crap what the heck kia sorrento really really hates poor people yes which he does in the book too but more anti-consumerist way in the book yeah the fact that wade wasn't actually poor none of the people feel poor he's not sharing his trailer you get little vignettes of other people and i mean yeah they're living in an rv but a lot of people live in rvs in the real world and it's not the worst thing ever but in the book it's the worst thing ever Mm -hmm. and he's stuck on a planet and he can't go anywhere. Yeah, they describe it in so much better detail in the book to actually say you are living in this horrible ghetto where people die on a regular basis because they're like, your shoes look nice and I hate you because of that. It is very well described, but in the movie, it was just this complete ecosystem, this society of just people who just learned to live together. The fact that you can have a pizza delivered via drone to the balcony of your home while a child drops from the upper levels and lands feet from you and it doesn't freak you out obviously tells you that you're in a good place. The neighborhood is fine. I mean, just the pizza delivery alone, because Alice in the book is described as stealing Wade's food vouchers. Yes. So she has her food vouchers and another human's food vouchers, and she's still specifically described as malnourished, even though she has two humans worth of food vouchers, says something. That's the other bizarre thing, too. And they're paying rent on it. They don't own it. Oh, yeah. They're paying rent on it in the book, whereas the movie, they're like, we're going to get out of here. You spent all of our house money. Yeah. But that's the other thing, too. That's the one thing that the book also had me going, which is how did Wade get fat if he doesn't have the food vouchers? Where is he getting his food and how did he get so much of it? It actually makes sense because it's also something nowadays. People that are truly going hungry and malnourished don't have access to good food. And so what's cheap? McDonald's, fat foods like you can get two bags of chips for 97 cents. How many vegetables can you get for that? Like nothing. So nowadays, food banks 
they talk about how people that do go hungry and are the most malnourished are the heavier people because they don't have access to exercise. They don't have access to healthy food. So it does actually make sense. Totally fair. Okay, so the movie did one thing. So I guess maybe because he's wealthier in the movie, that's why he's skinny because he can afford good food. Yeah, but all of them are skinny and it's dumb and they're all really attractive. Yeah, there was not a single fat protagonist. And once again, the pretty female lead gets kidnapped, but the butch woman is cool and fine because she's butch, so she doesn't need to be kidnapped. I hated that so much. Everything was Samantha's hotline. I hated. Hold on. We are doing a horrible job of staying in any sort of a linear fashion of the way that we crap on this movie. No, it's all bad. Jumping back to the beginning, when he's going into his hideout for the very first time and you see what his setup is, why does he have such high tech gear? He does. It's really bad. That was one of my notes I put in. He has a really impressive rig because you see other people's rigs in their houses. All they have is a visor and people are jumping on sofas and stuff. But he has this fake terrain thing that he can run in any direction. The whole omnidirectional treadmill. And gloves and a suit. All these people with just visors and he has all of this crap. Yeah, he's not poor. And he can buy a haircut, but he can't buy fuel for his car. At least H calls him out on that. Yeah. But it's dumb. Since we're in the Oasis now and you're talking about the haircuts, the one really important bit, the namesake of the book and of the movie, the first time he logs into the Oasis, we see this horrible, disgusting CGI introduction, but it does not say Ready Player One. No, it never says it. It doesn't even say it at the end. At no point does it ever appear. They could have at least had it in the login for the race thing. If they got in the car, Ready Player One, tap. Somewhere. If it had appeared somewhere. I need my roll credits moment, but it never happened. But when it's so explicitly stated elsewhere, when you have such a fantastic roadmap that is the thing the movie is based on, there are certain things, especially if it's nonverbal, if it's something that just needs to be seen, something that just needs to be shown, and you don't do the thing, that's the easiest thing to do in a movie. Honestly, the hardest thing to adapt from writing a book to filming a movie is all the stuff that isn't described, because you can give only the details that are necessary and a little bit of world building in a book, and that's where your imagination takes over, and that's all people need when they're reading a book. But in a movie, you have to show them everything. Yeah. Anything happening in the background is stuff that you have to also paint in, that you have control over everything, and you have to show everything. That's why you get all these funny moments when people are analyzing the background characters, and they see extras who are pretending to sweep, and they have the broom a full foot off the ground, because they're just trying to pretend to do stuff in the background, and that's what people recognize, that's what people see. That's why it's so much harder when you're doing a film for specifically background stuff like that. So when it's nonverbal, when it's seemingly insignificant, you shouldn't have an excuse for why you don't include those things. Putting Ready Player One, like you said, in text somewhere in the car when they're starting the race would have been so easy. But now we're on the race. Now we're talking about that. Okay, so this is the part where I point out everything in the book they do, they can't do in the movie. Instead, Warner Brothers was like, I can fix this. Instead of being obsessed with the 80s, let's be obsessed with Warner Brothers. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. The race was a good example of all these Warner Brothers properties, but also the battle at the very end with all the artifacts just being Warner Brothers stuff. Oh, yeah. And then the Shining. The book is riddled with properties from all over the place. It would be the greatest crossover of all time to get all these different studios that own all these different properties to agree to let this movie happen the way that it was written. An 80s montage of everything. Yes. They did the best with what they could. Warner Brothers owns a lot of stuff, so they were able to get away with a lot of stuff. Didn't even have an immeasurable fraction of what was actually mentioned. They had to make some adaptations. Wizards of the Coast will let you bring up D&D, guys. Yeah. Netflix managed it. Yeah, they could have. But now we have the first challenge. Oh, I hate the first challenge. Instead of being and really helping to enforce the underdog story, which is knowing the first challenge is actually on the planet where all of the students go, where all the public schools are, everyone has access to it. And if you're too poor to go elsewhere, you at least shouldn't be too poor to be at school. It's in a great place. And he specifically chose that spot because he wants a student to find it, not these big corporations with stuff or whatever, or already rich people. Halliday in the book at least had his act together. Halliday in the movie needed help. Oh, God. Which I'll get into Will Wheaton's ability to narrate in a little bit. You didn't ask for it, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because, uh, uh, oh my God. You didn't like it? He 
said so many weird words that ticked me off. But also a lot of it was just the way that Ernest wrote the lines. I can only fault Will Wheaton so much before it's the author's fault. Yeah, Ernest has a way of writing. And granted, he did choose sci-fi, but he info dumps a lot. Yes. And most of the time, it's interesting and it's okay. And it makes sure you're learning about the world, which is important because as James always points out to me, in sci-fi, the world is a character unto itself. Nerd. But there are some times where I'm like, dude, just please plot. Please stop talking about how much he misses Artemis. I don't care. Please plot. <laughs> the entire second act of the book, I hated. Oh, yeah. I love hearing middle-aged men or older men writing about teenage fantasy. It's just, you know what, man? You're right. You're spot on. That's exactly what goes through the mind of a horny teenager. It's better than when they try to write teenage girls is all I'm going to say. The movie makes Halliday's Hunt much more introspective than it was originally. Yeah. Because in the movie, it's all about Halliday as a person and no joke, unapologetically, the real treasure were the friends we made along the way. And the book. It was good because they were fighting so hard against being a team and working together. But at the end, he forced them to work together. He was like, no, I want a team of people or something. I don't know. Maybe they were going to duke it out in the final thingy. But the high five in the book is like the A team. And then the high five in the movie is like the three stooges. The high five in the movie is Wade, 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 Wade. Samantha kidnaps him. Wade, Wade, Wade. Wait, wait. They are disgraceful gunters for the memes. There's no reason why they should be as good as they are, because in the book, they were extremely all very knowledgeable. They had seen all the important movies multiple times, had analyzed them frame by frame, and then we get to this whole thing with The Shining. We find out H has never seen it, and Shoto, or sorry, Sho, has only ever watched it through his fingers because it was too scary for him. You don't get to do that. Yeah. These people are supposed to be the best gunters in the world. One of my biggest complaints. I felt so bad for Shoto. He got the worst rap in the movie because, first of all, the only reason Artemis figured it out is because she watched Wade. And then Wade told H how to do it. H told Dido how to do it. And then Dido told Shoto how to do it. And somehow, in between going backwards and completely VR, no obstacles whatsoever, Shoto manages to destroy his vehicle. Oh, yeah, he does crash his car. Yeah, oh, God. He does get a crap rap but at the same time he's 11 the most bad 11 year old ever artemis said i think in the book he's 13 back on the race i refuse to believe that in five years nobody went backwards i do that on races i actively do that on racing games all of the time and granted i know it's like actual track and there's not a wall there like maybe everyone's too that averse to dying but i swear there's no way there wasn't at least one level one gunter who got bored out of his mind and was like, you know what? <laughs> Backwards. Who just decided, screw it. This'll be funny. Or that a level one person didn't get the controls right and went backwards. Yeah. But yeah, that's how we solve this because randomly Halliday in his memory is suddenly like, let me give you the answer. Oh my God. Let's go to that scene right now, which is putting an asterisk on Wade's entire victory in the movie. First, we go to the Halliday journal which is dumb i liked anarch's almanac personally why couldn't you have kept that anarch's almanac was much cooler because they were changing so much stuff i guess they wanted to make sure people knew enough that this was different from the book that's the number one way to piss off everyone yeah but we're told by the curator that wade has been there multiple multiple times goes there on his weekends it is his favorite place to be yet the first time that we get to see it of course the curator treats us to this canned introduction to the hall of records i know no, there is no Wade. Wade wasn't like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I've heard it. Shut up. Oh my God. That would make a lot more sense if the curator was an AI and is not just Ogden Morrow in his free time deciding, screw it. I'm going to check on all these people because I don't know how the hunt works, but I do know that I need to be here because reasons? The first 
first time he did it in the book, which he's really dumb because he knocked over some stuff. But the first time we see him knock over stuff is when all five of them are there. So I'm assuming that he started going into H's chat room once he was on the scoreboard, figuring, oh, they eventually they'll talk together or something. Yeah. But that makes so much more sense than... It was me all along. Oh, let's look at Halliday's memories that he's codified. This guy who hates reality, but is going to make sure you can see all of his, even his most embarrassing moments, like the whole thing with Kira. Well, he got rid of everything except that one moment, which rather than playing a perfect game of Pac-Man, you just had to know that one piece of trivia and boom, extra life. I call shenanigans. That was so dumb. And no, it wasn't even that. He just happened to make a bet with the curator about something the curator should have known. Yup. That was so stupid. I liked the Pac-Man thing because you were like, well, how is this going to come into play? You know it comes into play. Oh, I hated that. Yeah, it took him nine hours to pull that off. Now, the asterisk on his entire victory. They're in the hall and they go to this particular memory and I don't remember why. I think it was some conversation that he had had with Artemis that reminded him of a different thing that was said during this clip that they're watching, but yet he did not remember all the stuff on the second half of the clip. Okay, so the reason he did it is because they got to the King Kong in the racing thing and he stops Artemis from dying and he's like, hey, you can't get past King Kong. It's basically a rule. And she's like, Halliday didn't like rules. That's right. It was dumb. (laughs) So he remembers, oh yeah, that was in a clip. He goes to watch the clip and then he says, I'm done. You can close it. And he starts walking away. He gets halfway down the hallway and the curator is like looking over his shoulder like, is he still listening? Is he still listening? Come on, come on. He lets the thing play by. And then Halliday gives the hint as far as I wish we could go backwards, you know, just as fast as we can. Just really put the pedal to the metal. And then Wade keeps walking and then he stops and says, wait, 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 play that back. And he runs all the way back over there and then they play back. Had the curator actually listened to him when he said, stop, I'm done. You can shut it down. The entire movie doesn't happen. Oh my gosh. Yep. But because Ogden Morrow straight up says, here you go on a silver platter, what you need to know. Bull. Yeah, I hate that. That's how they use Ogden Morrow's character. Well, because they're not going to be going to Oregon later, so I guess they have to include him somehow. In this dude's spare time, he just so happens to sometimes pretend to be the curator. There had to have been an actual AI at some point because there were so many people going through this, but now he's just decided now that no one comes to the museum anymore. Such a sad life. The whole point of the thing that they watch is that Morrow's like, hey, you need to live in reality. And so Octane's just always in the oasis waiting for something. I don't know. It's dumb. Oh my god. So the whole beginning to the hunt, I have never in my life seen a video so well described as the way they talk about the invitation video in the book. They straight up tell you word for word, line for line, choreographed how it happens. But what you get in the movie where they can actually bring that whole thing to life is caca. You get nothing. It's awkward. It's weird. You get Halliday leaning up out of his thing and just saying, hey, so there's three keys. But I like how in the book it mentions that that invitation video becomes the most scrutinized piece of video in existence because everyone's watching it to get these clues. And it's this epic four or five minute long video all about what you need to know. Yeah, and it keeps switching. Yeah, all these transitions. And he keeps doing weird things and saying weird things. And then he has a clue. Yeah, where was the clue? Instead of being good and having a clue, instead they're like, and suddenly a portal appeared to a racing game. I know. We got to see the invitation video, but where was the clue? How did they just say, oh yeah, some long forgotten, long forgotten screw you movie that is lazy writing and I hate you for it. Oh, yeah. Some long forgotten Gunter found the first gate and here we all are racing every single day, twice a day since then. No, you do not get to have it both ways. Screw you. No. Yeah, it's dumb. They put so much into this race and just for it to be solved by going backwards and him having no obstacles whatsoever and then to get there and be like, hey, you're the first person who did it. Congratulations. Here's a clue. Oh my gosh. Yeah, get a clue. (laughs) Oh yeah, that was... Oh, that was... (laughs) 
<laughs> like they were both face palming after that one. That's great. Oh, that was really cringy and not in a great way. The whole idea about the race they introduce in the book after Z has gotten his popularity, gotten his fame, gotten his fortune. He has all this money. And now once he's finally got to the point where he has cash to burn and to spend, then he starts creating these trademarks of his character, including the DeLorean with the Ghostbusters kind of theme to it. All the different 80s stuff. Exactly. Throwing it all together. And he earns that. He builds this car. It becomes a trademark of his character because he built it, because he earned it, because he's famous. Yeah. In the movie, he starts with it and it just cheapens the entire idea of this vehicle that he has. Now, granted, in the movie, they don't make it nearly as special. They don't make it a trademark of his character. And we don't see an ounce of space travel in the movie. I also don't necessarily like how they use it in the book either, because they mention it when they go to the club and then he'll mention it when he's in his little fortress. He's like, oh, yeah, and that's sitting over there. But he always uses something else. So the only time he really uses it in the book, you could have used that more. Oh, yeah. Okay, wait, since we're at this part of the book, let me go back real quick. Uh Oh, go for it. They nerf Artemis's character. Like I said, I hate everything about her character. But in the book, she's figured out the clue. She just sucks at joust. Fair. That game looks really hard and ridiculous. I looked it up. But in the movie, like I said, the only reason Artemis figures it out is because she just follows Wade. And that's what happens in the second challenge, too. Yeah, she gets straight up told how to do the thing. Yeah, no. It's dumb. They do her character absolutely no favors. No. And once again, she was one of the characters. She was heavy set, and that was a whole thing. And she was short and heavy set, but in the movie, nope, gotta be conventionally attractive. And you get robbed. Oh, no. She has a sort of, kind of birthmark. Not really, that she gets over really quickly because a boy likes her. Well, it's only an hour and 40 minute movie. I can't. I still can't get over that Samantha kidnaps him to come to the resistance. Oh my gosh. Yeah, especially because in the book, it's such a big thing. Sorry, we can't meet in person because I'm too ashamed of myself as a person. Sorry. Even though they all look exactly like their characters. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, since we're going to talk about that, in the book, the Oasis is supposed to be, if you get better and better gear, becomes indistinguishable from reality. Yes. It's such an amazing place that you could see ants on a tree, individual blades of grass. You could see such fine detail, but not even close in the movie. No. Everything is CGI. Nothing looks real. Which is sad because I know we're three years in the future, but the PS5 and the Xbox Series X is doing it just fine, guys. Yeah. You couldn't have had one scene where he's like, I appreciate how pretty this looks. Come on. Pixar had figured it out by now. What is y'all's excuse? Warner Brothers? So in my mind, in my headcanon, if I was making this movie, I was casting each character twice and it would be who plays them in the real world and who plays their avatar to the point where it might be like a uh, Louise telling a story from Ant-Man kind of an aspect where one person's voice is coming out of the other or you cast people that are similar enough in the way that they sound that you can kind of understand because when you hear the ways that someone talks and then you see them for the first time, you always get this weird, oh, like you don't look like your voice at all. So it wouldn't be all that important to me. But still, I was always casting two different people for each role in my head because in my mind, the Oasis was indistinguishable from reality. You would just see this person. Yeah. But the thing is, it was always another person. Everyone's avatar was another person. Wade was just a Caucasian male. H was a Caucasian male played by the heavyset black woman, Artemis. Heavyset girl, her avatar, sexy white girl. And then Daito and Shota looked like samurai. Well, in the book, she looks exactly like her avatar. Yeah, yeah. She's a little shorter, she's a little heavyweight, and she has a cute pixie cut where in real life she has the bangs to cover the left side of her face or whatever. Yeah. But that was the one thing that always got me. I'm like, all of these possibilities, even when he graduates high school, because in the beginning, he's like, oh, you can't be elves at school. You have to look like yourself. I'm like, you graduated. Why are you not an elf lord? Uh, This is true. Why do you look boring? Why does your character still look like you? You, but a little taller, supposedly a little more attractive. Fair. That is absolutely fair. You are not governed by rules. Why does the main character have the most boring avatar? But even then, I hate that not everyone just had normal avatars. But H, this shark monster, the thing that ticks me off so much is that in the book, it's this weird reveal when you find out that H is actually a black girl. Yes, it's a big deal. And it's deserved. They build up to it and they get to that moment and you're like, like, oh, 
like, whoa, that was really cool. And Wade reacts appropriately at first. He's like, oh my gosh. And then he's like, what the heck? <laughs> I feel betrayed. Yeah, I was expecting a 300 pound dude named Chuck. And then after a while, he gets it and he's like, okay, fair. Seeing nuances about H as a person is what makes him realize who it is. Flashes that trademark Cheshire grin. And that's when he realizes like, oh my God, you're my best friend. And they click right back into becoming best friends instead of H tackling him in an alleyway outside the resistance because his girlfriend had just gotten kidnapped. And they have a passphrase. It's not even a passphrase. It was that whole thing about 300 pound dude named Chuck, which in the book was never something between H and Parzival. It was something between Artemis and Parzival. Yeah, Wade was just like, that could totally be a thing. And then he says it to Artemis's character. And they kind of bring it up in the movie that she's gay because during The Shining with the pretty woman, H is something like going with the flow or something like that and almost kisses the woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think you would notice that the first time around because you assume it's a man. But the second time I watched it, I caught it. But also that's one of the issues there. It's like the voice modulation for H is so incredibly bad in the movie that it's quite obvious that there's something there because no one sounds like that. Yeah. You're listening to this and you're like, hmm, why is someone using a bad voice changer? So you know there's something up with that character. Whereas in the book, there's no way to see it coming, at least for me, because it was all being read by the same guy. Yeah. Of course, it's all going to sound like Will Wheaton trying to do voices. But at least when you're reading it in the book, everyone creates their own mental voice for what that character sounds like. And when they tell you straight up, it is a guy because you have only the information that the main character has, that's where you're going to go. You go to the conclusion that you are not drawing for yourself that you are told it is described to you for that exact reason, for those express purposes. The question I have, though, is that H and IROC both attended the same school. They weren't just also students on Ludus. They attended the same school. Oh my gosh, let's, no, I don't want to talk about IROC on either of them. Oh, no, 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 you don't get to avoid this. <sighs> the thing that I have is that in the book, at least, IROC would know H's first name. Now we know that she used a fake name when they signed up for school, but IROC would know that fake name and there would still be some sort of an association. The fact that we're never told what that fake name is. Until he gets the file much later. That's a bit odd because IROC would know that. And I doubt IROC would be the steel trap that we all believe that he is when it comes to information. All IROC is able to reveal in the book is that they're students on Ludus. Boom. That's all they're able to reveal. He would know H's first name and he would think that that was some big thing he'd be able to give out. Yeah. That would be information that would help validate his story. But that part doesn't happen. No. And then he disappears forever. He's never coming up being a thorn in your side ever. Like, ever. Oh my god. I don't believe it. He was such a throwaway character. Oh yeah. And then they gave him such a big part in the movie. He was in my opinion just as much of a throwaway character in the movie. Everything that they didn't want to give to a nameless nobody they gave to Irok. He's a bounty hunter for artifacts but also for people except he never actually bounty hunts for people but also he's a high level mage that can cast the orb. Oh that was a thing too. That the orb you didn't even need to be a mage to use it. You just needed to know the activation phrase. Oh, that was dumb. Yeah. I like in the book, as long as they stand still and are holding the orb, it's active. And it makes for a much better moment with the whole retrieval system, walking a bomb through and blowing everything up. Okay. And now that we're talking about this as well, Sorrento keeps his password on his machine like an idiot. Sorrento's password is bossman69. <sighs> The fact, one, he had it written down, which, yes, bad, but two, the fact that he needed that written down. If it was some randomly generated capital Q, lowercase i, seven exclamation point stuff that you get from Google nowadays, that would make sense. If I was wearing my badge from work right now, I could show you that I have one of those random passwords written down character for character that I need if I ever need to check out something. I typically do it from my desk, so I let my computer remember that password, but if I ever am finding myself in a situation where I'm using someone else's computer and I need to check something out, I have it written down and it sucks. Every time I have to type in that whatever's 18 digit long password, it's awful. Yeah. I would have that one written down and taped to my desk because that's all that you really need. Whereas passwords don't even need to exist because the book already approached that concept, which is you have a retina and you have a passphrase. Fingerprints, retina, passphrase. Yeah. And it's just really dumb 
up, if you were going to have it written down, at least have it at your desk, man. Yeah. And why does a rig have a mirror in it anyway? The rig itself is dumb. That is a weird hamster ball looking rig. Now, granted, Wade gets his tiny efficiency apartment when he moves to Columbus in the book. That is the rig that he gets, which in my mind, that is not at all how I pictured it looking. No. Because that is horribly inefficient when it comes to space, especially because in the book, it straight up mentions it can fold up and get out of the way. Also, I didn't like that apparently... To start to wear a bodysuit? I can't remember. But apparently the bodysuits can actually mimic feeling. And I didn't like that. Sorrento does wear one because later on in one of those final fight scenes. Oh yeah, he's like, get me out of this at a dumb moment. No, dude, go back in. Before that, he gets kicked in the nuts. And when they open up the doors and they're walking in to help him out of the chair, you see the glowing right around his balls as he collapses to the ground and kind of takes that part off so it stops hurting. Which, can we talk about how apparently the only movement you can do in game you can do in real life but somehow wade suddenly knows how to do karate moves they address that in the book by just saying oh yeah i load up my blah 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 software he has a karate simulation yeah not in the movie you don't get to do that the one scene where there are these weird moments these weird movements that are happening that you don't get to see the real life person mimicking is the dancing scene between artemis and parzival all this disco starts happening and he takes forever to pull that up that was not Oh, yeah, no, he pulls up the thing. You can see his UI going by and he's clicking on whatever he's doing. You see it used where this software is controlling the movements of the character. But we see how clunky it is to make one of those decisions, which lets you know, well, in the middle of this fight, I never saw him go into his samurai or into his kung fu menu and pull up this particular fight choreography. So he must be doing this himself. Which in addition, why did we haven't really talked about her? They decided to split Sorrento into two characters. Yeah. One that controls the loyalty center and then Sorrento who's incompetent and dumb. That one really small character who shows up and reads off the clipboard. The one who breaks into Wade's apartment in the book is this suit that just reads off the things that whatever his fake character thing was and just reads the whole thing off and that's it. That's all that character was. But that character is now brought in and is given an entire facet as half of Sorrento's duties and also Finale? Who came up with the name? Who came up with the haircut? Oh my gosh. That was unfortunate. Yeah. But for some reason, this woman who in the beginning of the movie, her only duty was running the loyalty systems. Is ready to kill people. Is suddenly an assassin and knows jujitsu. What? (laughs) Why? Have you ever worked in insurance? And then the stupid tension of oh no, I can't put the key in because (laughs) driving is shaky even though the rig should theoretically keep you steady. What's the point of all of the wires. Oh yeah, that was one of my notes too. So right before that, one of the moments that legitimately made me chuckle was they did a great casting for Halliday slash Anorak. Yeah. Because his dry delivery was probably some of the best moments in the movie. And so when he's reaching out for the key and the truck shifts over and he misses the key and he misses it again and he goes, well, do you want it or not? That moment, that was one of my favorite moments. It's like, you know what? That's what you say at that moment. Thank you for giving me that. So I do appreciate that. But then 10 seconds later, when there's this whole buildup and he's trying to get the key in, gets one key in, like, oh, struggles a little bit, but gets a second key in. And then the next 10 seconds takes six minutes to go by as he's scratching that out of the face of the lock because he can't get the last crystal key in. You even cut over to the oologists over in IOI are all like, just get it in! Why were they cheering for him? The whole point is IOI wants to take over. Why were they cheering for him? I think because they are supposedly legitimately Halliday scholars. They are people who have made a life out of loving everything that Halliday does. And I think they are just happy to see the end coming to fruition. And it's still dumb. However, that doesn't get described at all. They're all going to get fired. Yeah, of course they're all getting fired. None of them did their job. All of them are getting fired. Oh my gosh. And they kept solving the puzzles. And in the book, it's a big deal that IOI is in places because they're cheating. Yes. That's a huge deal in the book. Six people have one, but they just use numbers. And I get it. But it's not as cool as finding out that they're cheating. Yeah. That makes them a way bigger threat because they're not playing by the rules. True. And honestly, not just cheating. Playing dirty. Tracking down. Murder. Murder. Tracking down the members of the High Five and attempting to kill Wade and in the process killing poor old Mrs. Gilmore and his family. 
the whole stack and then the stack next to the stack and the stack next to that. All of these random innocents and then freaking Dido in the middle of battle. In Tokyo, go to his apartment and throw him off his balcony. And records the whole thing. That's the one thing I didn't understand. If you're going to have a black ops mission of murdering something, why the crap are you recording it and keeping it on file? I.O.I. was extremely twisted in the book. In the movie, they're just this weird, incompetent villain with murderous intent. Sort of, not really, because there's that one point where she's like, oh, you take the gun and go do it. And he walks away. I'm like, you're such a Wait, no, no. The only thing that outweighs the murderous contempt of this corporate antagonist is its incompetence. It is not subtle the way they attempt to beat you over the head with symbolism in the movie. It's a bit more played out in the book, a bit more of a diet wokeness in the book. In the movie, they don't get to have that sort of a nuance. They don't get to be subtle. It's all just grabbing the reader by the front collar of their shirt and just smacking them up inside the left side, right side of the face. And you're saying, do you get the message? And they cut so much out of it. The whole thing about the book is to go with the 80s that Ernest Cline is obsessed with is the genre is cyberpunk and cyberpunk is all about the one guy in virtual reality and virtual reality is being about escaping current reality because current reality sucks because of the techno corporations destroying the world and so the one person has to fight off the techno corporate and that's what the book is and it's all about being anti-capitalist Capitalist, anti-consumerism. Capitalism's bad. And there's so many much more edgy points in the book that he's like, hey, this sucks. That the movie's just like, consumerism's fine, guys. It's just these guys. These guys go too far. But normal consumerism's fine. What's the first thing Wade does after he makes $100,000 from winning the first things? Buys He goes on a shopping spree. What? And not even like in the book where he actually gets an apartment. Oh yeah, he buys stupid crap. On a side note, can we talk about all of them doing endorsement deals? And I'm like, guys, that's really okay. Oh my God, that was funny. But in the movie, Wade buys one of those H1 haptic suits while in character using his own avatar to buy it. Yeah. And then that haptic suit gets mailed to him in the stacks. That haptic suit in the movie is made by Iowa. They now know who he is. Oh my gosh, he's so dumb. Didn't Rick start using his suit and that's why they thought he was there or something? I don't know. There was something with Rick in a suit. I don't know. So I think Rick just stole the suit from him. I think it was a separate event because IOI doesn't realize Wade is Parzival until IROC finds out that Wade or Parzival's name is Wade. Then they cross-reference purchased haptic suits by the name Wade in Columbus, Ohio and find, boom, the guy we're looking for versus immediately realizing, oh, we have an order for Avatar named Parzival. Hmm. It's being shipped to some guy named Wade Watts in the stacks in Columbus. Well, we'll just file that away for information that's not useful in this exact moment. No. And can we also talk about how, first of all, that's dumb. Yeah. But second of all, in the book, it was so crazy because the reason they found out is because they bribed someone in the school system to give the personal file of under aged children to this corporation playing dirty and cheating that was messed up do you have any idea how little a school administrator makes and that was the whole thing is they can control the world because they have money they are so incredibly corrupt and they do a great job at building up the evilness of ioi in the book because everything that they do isn't justified but it makes sense you can see the line as it was drawn to get to the end point whereas in the movie all you see is Why didn't they do that? Or why didn't they do that? Or how in that did they pull that off? There's so much interrupted, non-sequential, just completely broken plot points that there is no cohesive story in the movie. The movie is as all over the place as we are having a conversation about it. It's what we do best. Now, the book is not perfect, though. My biggest gripe with the book is that there is supposedly a world of millions of gunters who love and adore Halliday, but the book gives none of them credit, discounts all of their skills and abilities because they only care about the high five. If they 
there is a world of other people who care as much about Halliday's life as they do, how did none of them pick up? Because especially when they find the first key or whatever, and then there's legitimately a year break between when the first and second clues are found. Yeah. They completely discount every single other gunter in the world because the IOI, the company, only cares about the top five as well as their own employees. But there are probably thousands, if not millions of other hunters out there, probably who have already obtained the first key because it becomes public knowledge that could have been skyrocketed to the top of the scoreboard. But that would have made the book so much harder to write. Yep. And I will only give it maybe IOI redid the force field or something or people gave up or something. I don't know. But yeah, I didn't like that. But I also didn't, like I said, I just didn't like the entire second part of the book where all they talked about was Wade moping about Artemis over and over and over again. And also he goes on really weird tangents sometimes. The whole robot sex thing was a bit much. No, I'm more talking about the science wouldn't happen without masturbation even though most of the scientists that were named were married and had sexual partners. (laughs) Don't read too much into it. And I also didn't like, he goes on a really big spiel about being atheist in the beginning of the book, which, okay, fine. Yeah, to be like the truth or whatever, but he didn't really set it up well. He's just all of a sudden like, everything we've learned is a lie. And it's like, well, what have you learned? Are we to assume you're exactly like we are today? And it's just a child that grew up Christian is suddenly like, everything I know is alive. And then he mentions mega churches inside thing. That could have been interesting. Oh yeah, because that's what Mrs. Gilmore attends church in the Oasis. All of the time. And so I was like, that could have been set up better. He just sometimes goes on these really weird tangents. And I'm like, are you okay? Agreed. But I will agree. The middle of the book feels very much like filler because you get a lot of character development out of Wade, but way too much of it is placed wholly around this whole thing that the identity of the main character is that he is now heartbroken over this girl. Now, in the book, they justify it a bit more. They actually have chemistry in the book. Yes, they actually grow. It doesn't take too many pages to get the relationship described to them, but you do have time spent on the growth of their relationship because you can say in a sentence, montage of them growing together as people happens. And you're like, oh, and then your brain fills it in. Yeah, or we talk to each other every day for months. Yes. That means something. Yes. Still, I didn't like it because the beginning, he's an underdog. He has no money. He has to use his brain and his skills. Hold on a second. I want to complain about Will Wheaton right now. Okay. (laughs) We were just talking about the book and we were talking about how we get to see these moments when they grow together as people. And I never actually saw the physical book in my hand. I only ever heard Will Wheaton read to me everything that was on the page. Does he do voices? He does some voices. They're they're not good. I don't want him to do an Artemis voice. They're, they're not good. But a lot of the book is written in first person, so it's Parzival's voice. Yeah. Saying whatever it is, the text base that Artemis says. Yeah. But the only thing that Will Wheaton did not read on the page was probably the page number. Everything was read. And so today, whenever I'm looking at a meme or someone showing me one, some of the easiest ones to make are those whole fake conversations between two people. And you have name of the person, colon, and the thing that they say, name of person B in this fake dialogue, colon, then what they say. When you're reading that in real life, when you're staring at text on a page, you can skip what that first thing is and move on to that next piece of dialogue because you have the cognitive ability of doing that. But that's not afforded to you in an audio medium. No, not when they were doing the text chat. Will Wheaton read every single thing on the page. Oh. And so what I heard was, Parzival, hey Artemis, how are you? Artemis, I'm doing great, Parzival. No joke. Everything on the page was read and it was infuriating. Now think about every time in the book where they showed you the current standings on the scoreboard. Oh no, and all the IOIs. I got Parzival, 107,000. Artemis, 106,000. I legitimately pressed skip ahead 30 seconds on my ebook app and then I hear IOI 6674384000. IOI 6684244000. I kid you not, it was infuriating. I would skip ahead 30 seconds and listen to the last two. It was so bad. The text chat that you're talking about, it only happens once when it's a long one. Yes. But it is four and a half pages of Parzival, blah blah blah. Artemis, blah blah blah. Parzival, blah blah. Yes. And he didn't miss a single one. It was awful. And the scoreboard 
I'm pretty sure reads 10 different. Oh, yeah. The top 10 that he always reads out. And there's always a high score. Like, what does he do? The gate symbols later on. I don't think he ever said anything about the gate. Because they'll have the first gate. And then later on, it's important because you can see how many people have made it to the second gate and cleared it. So that's weird. I think they also say that in the text of the story where they say, and now a green gate icon has appeared next to my name in the scoreboard. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. But the other thing, since we're currently crapping on Will Wheaton, his pronunciation of poser is posure. <laughs> I wanted to drive off the road into any solid object every time because it's not just once because the best part is whenever Z is having a conversation where he's just having this tissy fit where they're throwing insults back at each other it's like you're just a poseur did you just call me a poseur you're a poseur poseur and I wanted to die in that moment I wanted nothing more than to be cleansed by the flames of my burning vehicle because of what I heard I'm crying legitimately you did not have permission to put that into my eardrums Will Wheaton and you can never take it back that is that is is glorious (laughs) in a really cringy way it was awful i don't get secondhand embarrassment i find other people's embarrassment very enjoyable and that's why i like watching bad movies or playing bad video games i just find it really satisfying for some reason and that is the best thing Now, it's not entirely his fault because there's sometimes where I'm listening to him speak and I'm wondering, like, why did he say that? But then I realize, oh, no, no, no. He's very literally reading what is written on the page. And so Ernest deciding to write certain things certain ways is what made a bit more about what Will Wheaton said that much more infuriating. It's strange what is chosen to be included or left out, not expounding on what 16K of RAM is, but using unnecessary words, costly describing experience points rather than XP. Oh, no. I feel bad for you when it hit the chapter where all it talked about was Wade's fancy new rig. Oh, my God. I skimmed that. I did not care. I can't imagine having to listen to that. It was just a bunch of gobbledygook. I don't even know if any of that was real or if it was supposed to be made up technology. I'm not sure if Ernest actually knows anything about computers. I don't know. Because honestly, it read like if my grandfather came to me and just said, hey, can you write down just words that have something to do with computers? And I'm like, sure thing, Pops. And I do that. I just write down every word I can think of that has any sort of a technical meaning to it. And I give that to him. Do you want me to tell you what these are? He says, no, I'll figure it out. And then he writes a book. (laughs) That's what that felt like to me. Yeah, that section was not great. I mean, it's important, I guess, because the book, sci-fi, whatever, but I could have done without that part. There's a couple of parts where I'm like, I could have gone without this. Thank you. Yeah. For the most part, the information was in the right place. Just tell me what the rig does. Yes. You do not need to go into excruciating detail about stuff that literally no one cares about. Because all you're going to do is piss off the people who do know what they're talking about. Shout out to me actually knowing what the heck Max was. Oh, Max Headroom? Yeah. There were certain times where I would get the reference and I would feel so cool. And then there were times I would get the reference and I'm like, that's sad. I know that. Yep. So my mother enjoys this movie. I've already applied for emancipation. My girlfriend, however, also enjoyed this movie, but she wants to read the book. She wants to understand why I despise it so much. Now, that being said, I watched this movie twice. I read the book twice because I did it first back in July or whatever when we first talked about doing this episode. Yeah. And I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm going to jump on. I'm going to go ahead and get it. I listened to the second book. I've listened to Ready Player Two. Really? It's so bad. Yeah, I've heard bad things about it. Oh my God, I hate it. Now, it's... It is not good. But still, the book, I enjoy it. I read the book twice. I didn't care that much. Listening to Will Wheaton do it, though, was the painful bit. But I say all this because when I talked about having to do it again, I went through the audiobook again. And then when I needed to refresh myself on the movie, I watched it yesterday. And when I was talking about needing to watch that movie, Pilar's exact words, because I had to write it down. The quote was too great. She said, we already watched that movie. They're in a dirty universe. The evil guy's a corporation. And there's that Willy Wonka looking guy who helps him save the day. Now, please, can we just watch? white chicks (laughs) we did watch white chicks and then i watched ready player one i did not have a good afternoon yesterday (laughs) but the worst part is she then decided to go ahead and sit down with me and watch that movie too and the whole time she's just talking about how i don't know how you don't like this movie this is so great i felt so bad for her and her awful tasted movies it's me in 2018 where my husband was like 
Mm, yep, you liked... Well, actually, he doesn't mind the movie. He has a lot more experience with being disappointed with book adaptations to movies because that's who he is as a person. So he doesn't mind this. He's able to look at it as a movie versus as a book. And obviously, since we're purposely comparing them, you can see how awful the movie really is. Yes. But yeah, I was such a young spring child. <laughs> oh, man. I did not know what I was in for. Rewatching it was hard. I just want to talk about, I like that we're on book mode. I like staying in book mode because we've been talking for what, an hour and 20 minutes? We crapped on the movie for probably an hour of that time. Yeah, but can we also talk about the in-game challenge is dumb and he went on an entire long spiel about how amazing Easter eggs are and sorry, I just hated that so much. Yes, but also the fact that there's a room full of oologists which show that they are not incompetent to realize the end of this entire hunt for the greatest Easter egg of all time, no one thought, oh wait, an Easter egg. This console has the first Easter egg ever made. What if we get that Easter egg? That was infuriating. But I liked in the book, they're like, hey, this is a thing. And then it comes out up at the end. You're like, hey, I remember that thing. If you didn't know already, I already knew that I'm nerdy like that. But in the movie, it's a speech about this Easter egg and how it's the first time humans were ever in games, really. Uh, it's really, oh, hey, yeah, back then, they didn't let you put your name on a thing. It's cool trivia. It's not that important. It really isn't. In the book, it's just like, yeah, back then, Atari didn't let you put your name on it. So one guy was like, screw you, I'm putting my name in it. So he did, but he just made it really hard to find. Yeah, and then he talked about how a bunch of people found them, and it was cool. I'm like, yeah, and that's the level it should be at. In the process, he started an entire, completely unknowing to him, started an entire facet online culture is now, which is just hiding things for the sake of the few people who will find the thing. And the fact that that gets lost to the point where you have dozens, probably hundreds of your employees who have made it, where they've gotten all three keys. They actually solve it in the movie. They solve the riddles themselves. IOI solves the riddles. They are much less incompetent in the movie, but at the same time... That makes them even more incompetent. Yeah. So in the book, the incompetence actually rests on the oologists in the book. They actually are just not as good of holiday scholars as the High Five are. And then you have this malicious overlord that is Sorrento and the actual company IOI going out and doing these horrible killings and doing horrible things. In the movie, you have these really, really talented, really smart holiday scholars and this dip who's in charge of the entire company who's just doing everything wrong. Screwing everything up. In the book, the dude earned it. He has these advanced degrees. He's very talented. He's done all this stuff. He's a real businessman. But in the movie, they're like, the only reason he got it is because he worked for them and he made Halliday's coffee. What if we had multiple tiers, you know, like a bronze tier and a gold tier or water? Because, you know, like Oasis, I wanted to change my mind about being on your podcast. It was painful. But then you would have gone that that far into the movie with no purpose. Steven Spielberg directed this. Yes, he did. E.T., Schindler's List, Jaws, Jurassic Park, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Holy crap, he directed Catch Me If You Can. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Back to the Future, The Goonies. Saving Private Ryan, which is my husband's favorite. Men in Black. He apparently did Bridge of Spies. That was pretty good. Now, he did do Jurassic Park 3, so there's that. Hook. He directed Hook. There's a massive list of all these fantastic movies that he had a hand in. And then Ready Player, like, oh, okay, here I, no, no, you can just see it gets kind of worse. Catch Me If You Can, I think is the last good movie of his that I've seen because the next movie of his that I've seen on this list is Indiana Jones, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Horrible. Yeah, they did not set up the ending very well. I've used all of my brain power just sitting here and trying to wrap my head around what has been the last couple weeks while I listen to and then rewatch this movie. It's something. I have nothing left. I am running on empty. This book has taken up more time now, the book was fine. This movie has taken up way more time of my life than I ever wanted to give to it. And I've seen it twice. If I had realized you were going to jump on it, I wish I could go back in time and be like, watch the movie first. So I can have that blissful ignorance of thinking the movie was good before having it ruined by knowing that the book was so much better. Yeah. So general thoughts. The book's good. If you really are into cyberpunk or the 80s, I think it's a fun time. I don't think it's a waste of time. It's not my favorite book that I've read this year. Do read the book. There are a few moments where the writing style of the author might be a bit cringy, like the way that they describe teenage romance, the way that 
they talk about their teenage characters, the way that it feels like the point of view is written by an extremely pompous and snobby 14-year-old who brags about how awesome they are and uses particular phrases like, since the moment I emerged from my mother's womb. There's certain phrasings that you're like, hmm, why the hell did you do that? But you'll be able to look past those because overarching, the story is very good. But to be fair, there were people in high school that I know that would have totally said that. Oh, yeah. And thought they were the coolest people ever. High school was a cringy time. Just because there's other ways you could say a thing does not mean you need to. In my mind, and I guess it's because it's my mind, not yours, not anyone else's, from the moment I was born, has way more acceptable and understandable and less side thoughts. My mind does not go racing into what the hell does that mean when someone says from the moment I was born. But when someone says since the moment I emerged from my mother's womb, all I go is straight Freudian and I'm like, hmm, why are we talking about your mother's vagina? The word womb is very weird. I don't think we use it enough for it not to be weird. I feel like saying uterus is way less creepy than womb and womb is supposed to be the pg version womb is used one time in pop culture where no one really cares about it because it's used perfectly and it's weird out womb with a view and that's it the one time i can think of where that word was used correctly it's an old timey word at this point it's weird just call it a uterus guys it's fine why can't we have other words like born birth no emerged emerged is also weird emerge is less like being pushed out and more like you have chosen now to go. That's weird. It also feels like you had anything to do with it. That implies choice. Ew. I've made my entrance. Let's not dissect that anymore. Party don't start till I emerge. General thoughts. Back to that. The movie is kind of eh. Yeah, the movie gets a solid three out of ten for me. The redeeming qualities are the dry delivery and humor of certain aspects and the fact that it does at least give you some sort of a reminiscent feeling or imagination of what the main idea was of the book. It at least is recognizable as what the source text was supposed to be. But it's the same way that LaCroix has fruit names on their can. And you look at that and you're like, yeah, I kind of get that. Yeah, that's how this kind of relationship works for me. The book is the fruit and the movie is LaCroix. There's a comparison. (laughs) Is that how you're supposed to pronounce it? LaCroix? Yeah. What do you say? Please tell me you don't say the X. Are you not supposed? very much no. I don't have it in my house. I don't know. We don't keep it in my house either, but I know how French works. Is it French? Yes. It just appeared on the side of a soda can one day, okay? I didn't know I was having a French lesson. (laughs) This was a can of Coca-Cola, but poof, now the universe has been adapted and this is now La Croix. I will say I am in a unique position to really know why that word is pronounced that way because I have a nephew named Croy, and it's C-R-O-I-X. See? Anyway. By far book. I can't do them both together. Just reading the book and then watching the movie, I can't. It's bad. Maybe that's why my husband, because he hadn't read since 2011 when we saw it in 2018. Beat me over the head enough with a blunt and heavy object and I might enjoy the movie more. When you can forget enough things, I would say read the book first and really enjoy it. And then after your mind starts to slip a few years later where you don't even realize what year it is anymore, then watch it. Read the book in 2019, watch the movie in 2020 when 10 years have passed. Truth. Thank you for exploring Ready Player One with us. I'm Sam Reiner. And me, David Warner. And we hope to see you and a friend here next time. Escape With Me Book Club is a Lunar Skulk production. Check us out on TikTok or Instagram to keep up to date with us. Lunar underscore S-K-U-L-K.